Hi, and welcome to Art Scoping. I'm your host, Max Anderson. Very often nowadays, the question needs to be asked is, do you really need a new building? The world is full of buildings that need to be repurposed. Does the world really need only new buildings? No, certainly not. It needs to rethink the ways it uses the buildings that we have. That's where our future lies. That's Richard Olcott, a design partner at Ennead Architects. His award-winning work for educational, cultural, and civic institutions is recognized internationally for architectural excellence. He received a BA from Cornell University College of Architecture, Art, and Planning and spent a year in Cornell's program in urban design at the Architectural Association in London. He's a member of the board of directors of the Municipal Arts Society and is a member of its preservation committee. He served as a commissioner of the New York City Landmarks Preservation Commission from 1996 to 2007. He's the recipient of the American Academy in Rome's Founders Rome Prize Fellowship for 2003-2004 and is a fellow of the American Institute of Architects. Welcome, Richard. Thank you, Max. Thank you for having me. Glad to have you on the podcast. I'm assuming you're somewhere far away from the city. I am in Northwest Connecticut, in Sharon, Connecticut, and have been since the middle of March. Okay, full disclosure, as you know, I serve as a senior advisor to Ennead Architects, so I'm far from a disinterested person, but we'll try to avoid flattering you. So Richard, as the pandemic makes its way, are you still getting phone calls? Are you still getting clients? We have gotten several new clients in the last couple of months, which is quite surprising in itself, but I think we are as busy as we've ever been. So there really hasn't been any slowdown, and they are significant new projects, new building projects. What do you attribute that to? I'd like to attribute it to the fact that people are looking beyond the current events and thinking into the future. And it takes a long time to build buildings. It takes five years, so you have to start planning them well in advance. So you mean during the Biden administration? Exactly. (laughs) Okay, that's good to know. Well, there are so many open questions today in design and architecture as a function of the pandemic. And speaking of that, is the open office endangered? Will that give way once again to cubicles? I would hope that's not the case. In fact, I've heard some people say the opposite. Certainly people might spread out a little more, but I would also hope a number of these things are temporary measures and that we'll get back to where we were sometime in the near future. So you think, to speak of office design in particular, we shouldn't be thinking about today. We should be thinking way down the road. Yes, I absolutely believe that. I mean, certainly we as architects, you know, we have always worked in a collaborative way and we work in an open studio and we all miss that terribly because we're all doing Zoom 24-7. So it's pretty easy for us to spread out a little more than we are now. I think it might change in the near future how we use conference rooms and bathrooms and elevators and things like that. But I would hope that collaborative environments like ours, they, they need to exist that way. There really isn't any other way of doing it. That is what makes architects tick. So what is it like to be designing buildings, designing projects in the absence of face-to-face communications? It is surprisingly easy in the beginning stages of things. Certainly there's no substitute for going to visit a site, for example. I know so a lot of the work we do for the State Department overseas is all on hold because no one can go and visit the site. And you can't really start a project without doing that. You can certainly do the initial stages, schematic design, conceptual design phases of a project remotely. And we've done that very successfully in the last several months. But sooner or later, you get to the point where 
You need to have face-to-face -face interactions. You need to look at samples. You need to make mock-ups. You need to do all of those kinds of things that are real world and real material investigations because in the end, that's what we're doing is building actual buildings. So sooner or later, we've got to figure out ways to, to do that. How much are programs like 3D modeling and other types of imaging software changing your practice? I would say our office uses about 25 different computer programs, and they're all running concurrently of all kinds of nature of, of modeling programs and management programs. It's actually completely different than it was five years ago. But that's not to say that people don't continue, particularly people like me, continue to use fat pens and rolls of tracing paper and the whole kind of hand-eye coordination. There's nothing faster than as a way of thinking than making a drawing by hand. Have you ever gotten a gig from the proverbial napkin sketch? I can't think of one, no. <laughs> <laughs> so post-pandemic, what are some of the changes you envision in museum design? Well, I, I think I'd like to, to take the kind of optimist view, all architects are optimists by nature, uh, and think that this will only be beneficial in terms of the way you experience art. There may be less crowds, you'll have more room to move, you'll be able to contemplate art in a little more in your own space. And I would also hope that might lead to uh, many museums, I think, are reconsidering and thinking about showcasing their permanent collections. Certainly the world is different now. People are less willing to lend, people are less willing to travel. Art is not going to travel perhaps as much as it did. But those are all good things. I mean, I would hope we can all see more emphasis on permanent collections and less on blockbuster temporary exhibitions. But that would entail a big shift. As you know, in recent years, museums have focused predominantly on special exhibitions to drive foot traffic, awareness, buzz, fundraising, and to make a change back to emphasizing permanent collections would be a sea change. So how would you look at that change as an architect? I guess I think that, by, you know, the little creative thinking on the, on the curator's part, you can, since many museums have probably 80 or 90% of their collections in storage, it's going to, it could take a hundred years to cycle through all of that. And so, so much of that people have never seen before. You can treat it like a temporary exhibition from your own collection. It's certainly part of a the museum design, if you thought of it like the department store analogy, if you put it all the way at the other end of the building, then you have to walk through the, the permanent collection to get to something that's different and new. That's going to expose a lot of people to art that they've never seen before, that the museum already owns. Some museums have turned to open storage as a way of revealing that iceberg below the tip that's on view typically. So what would you do in respect to that focus for museums as an architect? I, I think it's a fascinating idea and it's been very successful in a number of museums like I'm thinking in particular the Met's new glass enclosed study storage area in the American way is really it's quite wonderful uh, to be able to see a lot of that stuff. It's also wonderful to watch people restoring art at the same time, but you can learn how that's done. So certainly a peek behind the curtain is a, should be a fascinating experience for anyone. And by that logic, why limit it to conservation? Why not include other back-of-the-house activities that are today invisible, like the registrar's office or the technical side of the museum? You're referring to the iceberg of how museums actually work. I think all of that the public could find extremely interesting how it ticks. 
I think it's fair to say that the vast majority of museum space is off-limits. And it's not just watching people in offices, but there's a great deal of activity other than conservation and registration that might be of interest to the visitor. It most certainly is. I know you, you started, it wasn't your first job actually uh, in the basement of the Metropolitan Museum? Uh, yes, I was kept downstairs in the basement for years. <laughs> So as museums are rethinking what types of experiences they might offer to the public making use of their building envelope post-COVID, what sorts of ideas would you suggest to museum directors and curators? I guess the first thing would be to, to, to take a, a step back and take a look at what's in the collection that people, that people might find, you know, current, topical, interesting, you know, that, that's been there gathering dust for a long, long time. That could be a really interesting exploration. For museums that are older, I mean, just imagine the, the wealth of material that they must have. So it's really a question of cycling things out of the building and into storage and other things out of storage and into the building. That could go on for a very long time before, before you repeated yourself. I was also thinking recently about, you know, there are a number of interesting possibilities in terms of open spaces spaces that museums maybe haven't used for art before. Uh, there are so many of these museums that have big spaces that they used to use for parties and things like that. I'm wondering why those can't be repurposed into art spaces. There are so many interesting site-specific works of art that are commissioned that maybe aren't necessarily in places that were intended at all for art, like the sugar refinery in Brooklyn or the armory on the Upper East Side, you know, are two examples of amazing found industrial spaces that have been used for art. So you're wondering if some of those elaborate party spaces and atria that have been designed for shock and awe as party space could be repurposed to displaying either site-specific art that's commissioned for that space or simply larger installations that otherwise might remain in storage. Yes, exactly. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of think how many how many square feet have been devoted to that sort of thing in many museums nowadays. Uh, I don't know why they can't operate on both levels. And then, given the concerns about airborne viruses, rooftops rooftops are, in some ways, being used by museums, but so many have yet to consider that claim on space for display and experience, haven't they? Absolutely, we're going to be more emphasis on things outside in the open air, and that's a great thing. And that's not only on a rooftop, it might be also on the street, the city itself. Richard, you've long championed privileging historic architecture in the context of contemporary building. Can you give us an example of how you've thought about that? I think we've all in our office been always been very proud of the work we did at the Yale Art Gallery. That building is comprised of three beautiful historic buildings that are entirely different from each other. One uh, Victorian Gothic 1865, one kind of Romanesque revival 1928, and one high modern with a capital M by Louis Kahn. And they are all connected. So that represented a, an unbelievable challenge as to how do you create a cohesive museum that can exist in such radically different kinds of spaces that were designed hundreds of years apart. And how do you avoid facadism, which is basically keeping the skin of an historic structure and then gutting the interior and <laughs> eliciting the wrath of preservationists? I think in particular that project was extremely fulfilling for everyone because there are 18 different curators in that museum. They have an astounding collection 
5,000 years of art, but also they have contemporary art, decorative art, furniture. They have all kinds of different things. So there was really a, a set of choices made as to, to think about how to get the art and the buildings to resonate with each other. For instance, the 19th century American decorative arts collection is in the 19th century American Gothic building. Makes perfect sense. The Roman Revival building has the Greek and Roman sculpture department. So those are all kinds of ways that the collection naturally can fit into a building. And both are the better off for it. Are you saying that you work directly with curators and not just with the Caped Crusader, the director? Yes, yeah, absolutely, very much so. There are plenty of curators that are not shrinking violets in many institutions, and they all have lots of opinions about how to install their collections. And that's not only in the big spaces, but it's how wide the floorboards are or how high the wainscot is or you know, what colors they want to use. And so all those things are carefully tuned and customized for each one of those collections. At the same time, there is the director whose job it is to make sure that all 18 of them are playing nicely together and that there is some kind of continuity and consistency moving from one space to another, that it's not a complete disconnect when you walk from one collection to another. And that's no small feat. Your practice is also distinctive in that you really do listen to the client. So many architects arrive with an idée fixe and fit the project within that. Can you give us a little background on your working method? We ask lots of questions of our clients. We like to learn what it is that makes them tick. We try very hard to honor what it is that they believe in to make their institution's identity come to the fore so that no two of our projects are ever the same. They are uniquely suited, we'd like to believe, to the clients and to the places that they exist in and to the, perhaps to you know existing buildings as well. Wrangling 18 curators is one thing, but working on a college campus involves a lot more stakeholders between administrators, the deanery, the provost, the faculty, a whole variety of invested people. So how do you manage that? I think we've found when we work with universities that they are, for the most part, extremely well organized. And while you do listen very carefully to user groups, professors, scientists, whatever they, they may be as to their needs, one finds that over time, they move around, they go to a different university. And so it's somebody else's job, higher up the food chain, to figure out how to make buildings that will last through various cycles of different kinds of teaching going on in them. We depend on our clients to be well organized to do that sort of thing. We certainly talk to everyone, but in the end, somebody's going to make the decision and it's usually not the user. And most major universities have a campus architect in office. How do you navigate that relationship while still getting your goals across? Oh, I think we depend greatly on campus architects because they have so much knowledge and history that they are willing to impart, and that is immensely valuable especially if you're working in a place that's been around for more than 100 years. There's a lot that you need to know. If you don't mind, I want to return to a COVID-related topic, which is that the Spanish flu a century ago contributed to the birth and acceptance of modernism. The Swiss architect Le Corbusier said that a house is only habitable when it is full of light and air, and California modernist Richard Neutra, whose father died of the influenza in 1920, made sunlight and natural ventilation available in every habitable space. Do you think we might have the same kind of post-COVID design imperative? 
Absolutely, very much so. And it's a fascinating new direction. And it isn't so new, as you've just pointed out. For so many years, people have depended upon mechanical systems to ventilate buildings, but there's such a demand for natural ventilation and increased natural ventilation nowadays that I would expect, yes, that is definitely going to change as part of uh, sustainability initiatives too, ways of reducing energy. But it's a very interesting point you raise about modernism and its connection to the pandemic of 1918. I was thinking about this in relation to um, Alvar Alto's beautiful sanatorium in Paimo in Finland, which was designed as a building for the treatment of tuberculosis and has all of the aspects that you're describing, access to natural light and lots of fresh air and lots of places to sit outside in the forest and drink in the oxygen. But it goes much farther than that in that the whole aesthetic is derived from the notion of cleanliness and that whole kind of white quality of hospitals in which, you know, that they're easy to see where, where the dirt is. And that's the basis of the international style, one could argue. That is where it came from. It's the kind of reaction against the Victorian architecture that preceded it and the need to have clean, open spaces, easily cleanable spaces that can be therapeutic for people. People think about minimalism representing that, but that's where it comes from. It's absolutely true. I'm assuming that mechanical engineering also has to catch up in terms of heating, ventilation, air conditioning systems being upgraded. Yes, absolutely. You know, it's an interesting uh, notion that I don't know if you're familiar with the term passive house, which is a protocol developed in Germany for a super efficient net zero energy building method, which involves things like triple glazed windows and unbelievable amounts of insulation. And actually, it depends upon making a building that can be hermetically sealed because that's where the efficiency comes from. I would expect you to see that's going to change. Certainly, there may be times when you want it to be hermetically sealed, but what it really means is you need to be able to open it up and get that natural ventilation, whether it's you know natural convection or other means. That's where the future is going to lie. Green roofs have enjoyed increasing popularity. How about vertical gardens on the exterior of tall buildings? We will see more and more of them of all kinds and in all kinds of places because obviously that all contributes to healthy buildings and, and healthy people. Now, there are technologies that exist where you can really bring plants into a building environment, living walls. I mean, there's lots of really amazing technology for that. Now, it really depends mostly upon someone being willing to maintain it. And how much does solar change in the coming years, both in affordability and its adoption and use? Well, I think we've already seen in the last 10 years the efficiency of various photovoltaic systems is vastly increased and the price of them has vastly decreased and the amount of share of the market that they now represent is just going up, 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 which is all a, a really a great thing. And certainly some parts of the country are better off than others. Southern California is much better than Northern Vermont. There are all kinds of ways of trading energy too. So that, that's a huge and very beneficial trend. So beyond green roofs and solar panels, is anyone asking you for turbines on or around their buildings? We have not done one of those, but there are plenty of people who do them, in particular in places where there are constant and consistent winds. It usually depends upon that kind of an environment. They don't work so well in intermittent wind systems. And certainly, on the other hand, you've seen lots of all of the big windmill arrays going up all over the world 
which are unbelievably efficient. How much is all of this going to change the way you work? You start, I've seen it, you start with an iPad, right? I sketch on an iPad and I sketch on paper and I sketch on whatever's available. Yes. None of us uses any one system. And we make models and physical models, digital models of all kinds and mock-ups. And we have to do all those things because when you build a building, it's going to be full scale when you build it. So you need to know. That's how you find out whether you're on the right track or not. It's testing, constant experimentation. You typically start with a program that the client develops that tells you what to do. But is it the fact that with all of the changes in environmental requirements, it may be essential actually to start not with the program, but with some deliverables that are essential for a contemporary building in a new world? Yes, it is more and more an imperative. And I'm also thinking in particular, very often nowadays, the question needs to be asked is, do you really need a new building? The world is full of buildings that need to be repurposed. Does the world really need only new buildings? No, certainly not. It needs to rethink the ways it uses the buildings that we have. That's where our future lies. There's an appalling event going on right now where a beautiful high-rise building designed by Natalie Dubois, the only female designer at Skidmore, Owings & Merrill, a 70-story building is being torn down to build a, a bigger building. I think that's a travesty because it's a beautiful building. And it was actually five years ago completely renovated to be a lead gold sustainable building. So it's sort of unconscionable. Put into words for me why it is that I loathe these so-called super talls. Because they're completely out of scale and they don't contribute to the street, to the city itself at all. They're like high-rise monasteries, basically. People are completely divorced from reality when they're in them. That is an example of technology leaping over common sense. The first apartment doesn't occur until two or 300 feet off the ground because that's where the money is. That's where the views are. Why people want to live that high off the ground, I don't know. Do super talls have a future, Richard? I don't think so. There is a lot of efficiency in high-rise buildings, and people shouldn't forget that. And then the density that is created in a place like New York City. But do we need to have 1,500-foot-tall buildings? Probably not. I think there's a lot of examination going on right now about how much they cast shadows on places like Central Park. A couple of those new buildings on Central Park South or just south will cast a shadow that goes all the way to 72nd Street from 59th Street. That's too big. Hong Kong has more high-rises than New York, and you work all over the world. Ennead has an office in Shanghai. We do, yes. We don't actually uh, do high-rise buildings, per se, the way a lot of other firms do. We are much more interested in working in buildings that are in the public realm. But so far, we have not really done anything of that nature, high-rise. Not to say that we wouldn't, given the opportunity. So what's your favorite kind of building? to design, Richard? Well, that's a good question. I think Frank Lloyd Wright said the next one. Um, <laughs> I guess I, I have a particular interest in designing buildings for the arts, performing arts and visual arts. Concert halls, museums are both incredibly complex and fascinating projects. 
And the result is that you make some kind of a vessel in which the magic happens that you are just providing a backdrop for. That's really fulfilling for architects. So speaking of concert halls, how do you work with an acoustician? What is the division of spoils in your respective responsibilities? We work very closely with acousticians, and it is a fascinating interchange. And it depends nowadays very much on technology. Um, we did a concert hall at Stanford University a few years ago with a very famous acoustician named Yasuhisa Toyota from Nagata Acoustics in Tokyo. And we designed back and forth, we would create a shape in a digital model, a, a room, a 3D digital model of a room, send it to him digitally. And then he has proprietary software, which he uses to then measure in milliseconds all of the reflections from any seat in the house or from the stage or wherever. And when it comes back, it looks like a CAT scan or something. Uh, and it has, you can read it and see where it's good and where it's not. And we did that 18 times. And it was a very interesting process in that the first model, I sent it to him and he came back and said, you know, this is pretty good. This is like beginner's luck. This is pretty good. And so then I said, okay, well, what if we change this? And he said, well, that's a little less good. He never would say it was bad. He'd say it's a little less good. And I did that 17 times. And each time it was a little less good to the point where I realized, I hope my client doesn't find out about this because it's not as good as it was when we started. And at that point, we dumped it and started with an entirely new idea, which I think is because I learned by osmosis from Yasu how to make a, a room like that, because he never told me, you must do this, you must do that, like other acousticians do. He let me make my own mistakes. And then we came back with a completely different idea based upon all of the input that he had provided. And then he said, okay, this is great. This has really great reflections and reverberation times. Now you're done. You can't change anything. Then he became like a tiger and he wouldn't let me move anything six inches. How much will the seating requirements change in performance halls given the hypochondriacal age that we've now entered? That's a really good question. There is a strong movement nowadays towards a model of concert hall called vineyard style, in which all of the seats surround the stage. And the Berlin Philharmonic is the canonical example of that hall, as opposed to a shoebox hall, which would you could say like Boston Symphony Hall is a shoebox hall. And the reason is because everyone is closer to the music and to the musicians. And that is what makes performance is great. So the idea that everyone has to spread out now is kind of anathema to that, to the whole point of coming together and creating music together. Let's hope that there's a vaccine and we can get back to doing that because there's nothing better. Right. Or the equivalent of opera glasses maybe will be ear horns. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Richard, for the young listener who is considering a career what would you say to them in respect to enticing them into your discipline? It's funny you ask that because we've been talking in our office about ways of engaging younger people because many people 
I think aren't even aware of, of how much fun architecture can be. And it's something that most people aren't exposed to probably until they're in college. And it's really great. It would be great to reach much farther back into elementary school and learn about how fun it is to be an architect, to make things, because that's what we do. We make things and everyone likes to make things. So they, and some people are really good at it and they might find that, that that's a career choice that nobody had offered them before. I always thought being an architect is kind of a hereditary disease. I think if you asked most architects, you would find that there was another one in their family somewhere. And certainly it's not for everyone, but it's a fascinating and fulfilling profession. Absolutely. Richard, that's a great note to end on. Thank you for the time today. It was wonderful to get some of your insights and much, much appreciated. Thank you, Max. Very nice talking with you. We've been speaking today with Richard Olcott, design partner at Ennead Architects in New York City. Until next time, this is Max Anderson of Artscoping.